Hello, welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. I'm Michael Tulbit. And today we are speaking with Pascal Bart. She is an associate professor of French at the University of North Carolina in Wilmington, uh, and she works in the Department of Foreign Languages and Cultures. And what will uh, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And what we're going to be talking about today is really about 16th century relations between the Ottomans and the French, and really about knowledge of the other, how that came to be. And I think this is part of a growing wave of sort of, of scholarship, uh, reassessing Orientalism, reassessing the nature of representation and knowledge of the other, uh, especially in the early modern period. You know, previously it was often seen as an antagonistic relationship in which Europeans kind of created representations of the other uh, based solely off of whims and fancies and uh, power differentials. But I think now we're, we're really building towards a moment when we can see a whole variety of different relations. And our guest today is going to be speaking about uh, basically the early 16th century yes. uh, moment of interaction between uh, French scholars, French uh, writers and intellectuals, and uh, the Orient, especially the Ottoman Empire. So welcome again. Uh, Michael, do you want to? Yeah, sure. So, Pascal, thank you again for, for being here. Thank you. Perhaps you could begin by telling our listeners who might not be familiar with the story of how the Ottomans and the French come to enter into political and cultural relations. Could you explain how they enter into diplomatic relations and why and yes. who and all the important things like that? Yes, yes, yes. It starts uh, at the beginning of the 16th century. Um, the first documented... Um, contacts that we have happen right after 1525 when King Francis I is captured by Charles V. And after this moment uh, of diplomatic crisis and political crisis in, in the French kingdom, um, the mother of the king is going to establish contacts with the Ottoman Sultan, uh, Sultan Suleiman. Um, the, the Sultan is not going to respond the way that uh, Louis de Savoie was hoping that he would respond. Uh, in other words, he's not going to interfere in uh, the affairs of the Europeans in this case. Um, but this, this really marks the moment when uh, French and Ottomans get politically involved with one another and when the French are seeking for help from the Ottomans. Hmm. Which is kind of an interesting development, isn't it? That uh, this major Christian power should be going over, over to the east to find help from the the dreaded Turk. Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely. Must have been, been a bit controversial, perhaps. Uh, absolutely controversial, uh, but not so unexpected as one might think, because the French had always been looking east, um, and they were particularly interested. They were they were very aware of the capture, of course, of Constantinople, and they were also aware of um, what was going on in Safavid Persia. And uh, before they established contacts, um, official contacts with, with the Ottoman Empire, um, they were looking at possibilities of allying with the Safavids. Um, and the reason for this is that the French were relatively uh, insignificant, politically speaking, in, in, uh, at, at that time. They were squeezed between uh, Charles V's Spain and his territories for the north. And so uh, they were looking anywhere that, that, that they could to, to find political allies. So it's not as surprising that they, that they went and looked for uh, some Ottoman supports there. That's great. I mean, I think that's really important to emphasize, isn't it, that France at the beginning of the 16th century is not the same France of Louis XIV. It's a really under-pressure state that's quite poor, actually, as well. So 
what role does does commerce play in in this opening up of relations with the Ottomans? Mm-hmm. Um, so the the travelers that I've looked at um, are are going to either Safavid Persia or the Levant or uh, the Ottoman Empire, and um, they have they have multiple purposes for doing so. Some go there for commerce, uh, others for religious purposes, um, others for diplomatic missions, but many of them encompass these three, uh, one could say, um, competing you know, purposes, um, but they go and, and um, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Jean Tonneau, for example, who's uh, technically going on a, on a, on a religious mission, uh, to the Levant, to Jerusalem in particular, and who goes through the Ottoman lands and, and uh, Egypt while doing so. But when he comes back and when he writes about his experiences, he does talk about um, the political landscape landscape in, in, in the Levant and how complex, actually, uh, the Levant is in terms of uh, politics. Um, he brings back a pilgrimage narrative if one wants but in this pilgrimage narrative he also brings in uh, political details about competing uh, Muslim forces in the Levant uh, the Safavids and the Ottomans mainly Yeah, I mean this must be a fascinating thing for them to observe, I mean the Ottomans have just literally come in and conquered that whole area in the period that you're looking at so it's a really important source on, on. so what kind of um, divisions are they seeing on the local level? What are they reporting about the situation in Syria mm-hmm. and Palestine? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so, of course, uh, as did their predecessors, they look at different branches of Christianity that are there and that have been there forever. And they pick up some of the uh, the writers who, who wrote about these differences uh, before they did. Um, but they're very, very interested in what's going on in, in the Islamic part of... Uh, and in among among Muslims there. Um, it's becoming very clear that the, the Safavids um, are seen as a counter uh, point for the Ottomans and that before the French look into allying with the Ottomans, they had, uh, they had thought at least of allying with the Safavids. Um, and this is, so this is not, we, we tend to think that, you know, Montesquieu uh, in the 17th, 18th century, you know, this is when this alliance between France and Persia is, uh, is happening for the first time. But very, very, very early on in the 15, 1508, 1510 already, um, we see that the French are considering this possibility of allying with the Safavids. And, and, and this is through, through this um, possibility, which remains a possibility, there was never an, a, a political alliance with, with the Safavids and the French, but through this possibility, then um, comes the possibility of allying with the Ottomans a decade later or 15 years later. Wow, fantastic. I mean, that's really interesting because we often think about it's the Habsburgs who are the ones trying to circumvent the French by getting this Safavid alliance. So that's a nice little development. Staying in the Middle East, you mentioned that quite a few of your your Frenchmen are going on pilgrimages. And of course, it wasn't that long ago, really, on the scale of things, that Frenchmen had been in the Holy Land for a very different sort of purpose in terms of the the Crusades, which had not long petered out, really. So is there still a memory amongst the French of when their forefathers had come to reclaim the Holy Land, and what role does that play in how they write about it? 
Yeah, for sure. And, and the crusade is very much alive in the 16th century. This is, this is not only an idea, but um, there are calls for the crusades. You know, Leo, Leo X calls for a crusade. Uh, Francis I responds very ambiguously to this. Um, the crusade is very much, is very much alive. Um, so all those French writers that I'm looking at uh, have this as a background, mm. and whether these are uh, pilgrims or uh, chroniclers or even fiction writers like François Rabelais, the crusade in, in their works is, is always an underlining principle right there. But the crusade slowly and slowly gets rethought and readjusted and readapted to the political moment and the time of the days. Mm. So the crusade is, is uh, very much alive in the, in the early 16th century. This is, this is not an idea that has gone away. Uh, and there are actually calls for the crusade. Uh, Leo X, uh, Pope Leo X is going to call for a crusade. And uh, Francis I is going to react uh, very ambiguously uh, toward this, this, this call. He is, of course, the most Christian knight, and he's going to want to uh, pretend at least or um, to say that he is, of course, willing to go on a crusade. But the crusade is not very popular among the French at the time, and Francis I is, is, is not going, going, to, going to go on a, on, on a crusade without thinking twice about it. So all the authors I, I look at, whether pilgrims or chroniclers or uh, fiction writers such as François Rabelais, um, do uh, include the crusade and, and have the crusade in the back of their mind always when, when they're discussing um, uh, their approach and, and their take on, on the Ottomans. Um, later on, um, when Protestants are going to arrive on the scene, the crusade is going to take a new turn, and um, it's not going to be uh, Muslims who are going to have to be crusaded against, but it's going to be the Protestants, and we see that in um, beginning a little bit with uh, with Rabelais, but definitely with mm-hmm. with Iversin. So it's interesting. I mean, it's a nice example of how, uh, let's say, interconfessional relations between Christians yes. radically affects, uh, you know the way people represent uh, Muslim powers, the Ottoman Empire, the Safavids, and so forth. So we've talked about mercantile relations, we've talked about pilgrims and so forth, but I was just wanting to get a sense of, you know, still again, who precisely is coming over and in what format. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we often think of things as embassies or ambassadors, uh, but this is, of course, also the period before the kind of great uh, 18th century development of diplomatic culture and diplomacy. So what was the... Uh, embassies of the time? How did it look like? Did they go to Istanbul or was this always just mm-hmm. uh, a few travelers, a few pilgrims here? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, um, we see we see a lot of um, scholars, mm-hmm. humanists, go to Istanbul um, after 1535, 1536. And 1535, Jean de la Forêt is the first French ambassador uh, named, uh, permanent ambassador named uh, to Constantinople. And um, he's going to be the one who is going to financially help um, the humanists, the scholars, who are going to come to Constantinople, to Istanbul, and, and stay there for extended periods of time. All of these will come back to France 
and they will write about what they saw, what they experienced, what they understood or thought they understood. Mm. I don't focus uh, as much on these uh, people because people before me have done so. Uh, Frédéric uh, uh, Tangli being uh, one of them, of mm -hmm. course, in, in L'Écriture du Levant. Um, but we do see an influx of uh, travelers to Constantinople in the 1530s uh, and afterwards. Um, in terms of diplomatic um, negotiations and uh, embassies, um, we still have a lot of envoys. Uh, so we have, we have a French ambassador in Constantinople, but we also need to have couriers, mm. people who come and go back and forth, bringing messages from the French king to the Ottoman sultan and back. And Iversin is a very interesting case in point, I think, here. Um, this is someone who was born in the southwest. Um, around this, what time? Uh, around 15, we don't exactly know when he was born, 1520, 1530. Mm -hmm. And uh, at a very young age, he is, we think that he had a very strong humanist education, mm -hmm. but you know, there's still lots of gaps uh, in terms of his biography here. Um, and he is sent to uh, Genoa. Uh, where he serves as permanent ambassador or uh, representative for, for the French uh, crown. Um, and he's also asked to deliver messages to the French ambassador in, in Constantinople. So what we have here is someone who is not necessarily very well connected mm -hmm. with um, the, the, the court, who does have, however, a solid humanist education, and who's able, uh, who comes from, who comes not from uh, the main centers of learning or the main political centers of the of the time, but who does have this ability to go back and forth between between uh, the kingdom of France and particularly the southwest of France, where he's from, and uh, and and the Levant in particular, uh, particularly Constantinople through Genoa. Interesting. Does he end up writing a travelogue? I mean, how many of these experiences get transformed into textual um, accounts? Yes, yes. So Iversin comes back um, in the 1560s, 1570s, and he does write a travel narrative. Although, um, and, and this has been um, a little, this has been published, and this has been a little bit studied, but very little. But um, I, I I take issue with with um, uh, this 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 being a travel narrative in the sense that this is not a collection of notes that we're taking mm. uh, day by day. This is clearly and and this is in the form of a manuscript that I've that I've been able to look at. Um, this is written very well uh, without any um, additions for example without any editing done mm -hmm. and um, this this is several folios um, the end is quite abrupt there is no ending to this uh, but all the sentences are very well formulated which seems to indicate that this was done very much after the fact and this was this is what argue this was done very much after the fact not when he was traveling in, right. in Istanbul or coming back or on the way to. Um, and I, I, I view this as a, a way for Iversin to actually acquire a new political, um, political position within mm -hmm. his own uh, region of Gaillac in southwestern France, 
which had been struck by the wars of religion just as much as many other places uh, in France. No, I think that's an interesting point because, you know, so often we think that travelogues are really just about explaining the other, kind of just knowledge and things like, and stuff like this, but we don't look at the work that the texts do for the authors. You know, often it, they're written to acquire positions, uh, to ingratiate themselves with, you know, um, you know, different lords and things like that. Uh, and I think this is a very, a great example of how uh, people use travelogues for all sorts of different reasons. Um and then, if if I may yeah, add, if I may add something, um, uh, Iversin uh, also took with him uh, and kept with him many of uh, the political um, letters that mm. he was uh, delivering or that he came back with, and we have those letters. These have not been studied at all, uh, so this is the first time that uh, someone is is looking at these um, these manuscripts. Um, they're kept uh, in private archives uh, um, by the family of the descendants of, of Iversand themselves. So they've managed which is quite to keep it for over 500 years. Almost. They have, and we know that things have been lost in the process, but uh, we still have many, many of these, these letters. We have the Lissé-Passé, for example, mm -hmm. uh, of Iversand. Uh, in in Ottoman Turkish, wow. uh, this has been this has been translated. Um, but we have that, uh, and we also have a boiserie. And I don't know What's if a boiserie? so boiserie is is a wooden panel, a sculpted wooden panel, um, which is quite big. That that graces one of the fireplaces of Iversan's descendant right now in <laughs> Gaillac that you can go and 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 see for yourself. Um, so. Um, this, this, uh, and lots of questions remain uh, with uh, on this boiserie as well. Uh, we don't know when it was made uh, specifically, but we suspect that it was started. It was started in the second half of the 16th century, shortly after Iversan's return. Um, and this depicts this boiserie depicts uh, Iversin's travel to Constantinople. Oh, so really? we see him on two occasions on the boiserie. It's it's a boiserie that uh, that represents the world, uh, the Ottoman world in in Constantinople. We see a mosque, we see uh, janissaries, we see the Sultan, we see a picnic uh, where Iversin and two Ottomans are partaking into um, a social uh, gathering here. Uh, and then we see the reception of Iversin uh, with the Sultan at, on the bottom right of, of the boiserie. I mean, I think this is so interesting because so often, you know, when we think of these encounters, we only look at them through textual objects and uh, textual representations. But here is an obvious case of something that I, I had never expected ever to uh, exist, which is apparently a carved wooden mantle. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, depicting a, a journey in a sense of visual travelogue. Yes. Um, and I, do you have any idea about how this was created? How did he, did he basically come back to France and then he commissioned some uh, wood artists to try to carve his experiences onto this thing? Yeah, so Marie Cadet, who's an art historian, has, has looked at the, the boiserie in, in detail. And um, she hasn't been able to find satisfactory answers to any of these, these questions. So it's very much up in the air. Um, she thinks that the, the panel uh, might have been constituted of several, actually, panels with additions made later on. Um, the, in the middle of the boiserie, there's a, there's a painting, and that's yet another mystery. We think that this painting represents Iversin himself. Um, 
it, it's not clear whether it does. It's not clear as to who uh, painted um, this uh, portrait here, when it was included, if it was meant to be included in the first place. So lots of lots of questions still remain with regards to this to this boiserie. But what is interesting is that. This allowed Iversin, I believe, when he came back to Gaillac, this allowed him not only to represent what he had seen in Constantinople. So this, this boiserie um, allows Iversin to portray, to portray himself as bigger than, than life and bigger than what he actually was as, as a diplomat uh, in, the, in, in the East. Um, and, and what's interesting is that this boiserie was... Uh, available for all to see in his house in Gaillac, or we can imagine that it was uh, uh, available for all to see in his house in Gaillac. In other words, you didn't know how you didn't need to know how to read and how to have access to uh, a, a written report about his his um, exploits in the Levant uh, and in Constantinople. Uh, you you could see it for yourself, and the fact that it's in in southwestern France is also, I think, interesting. Because Gaillac is a small city still today, uh, a rather small city. But Gaillac, just like Castres and Toulouse and Albi, were caught in the religious wars there. Um, uh, and and for this boiserie to be to be there, uh, it it made it made Istanbul available to people in southwestern France that would not have perhaps. Uh, been able to travel or been able to have access to written documents about about Istanbul at the time. Mm. I suppose the question that leads from that is, well, what does Istanbul then mean to mm -hmm. these provincial mm -hmm. French observers? And mm -hmm. kind of this construction of a of a, an image of the Turk or of the Ottomans, as I think you argue in your book, is very often a, a reflection not just on French individuals, but on France and French society, and on you know it's a mirror, if you like that um, uses the Ottomans as a trope to reflect back into France. So in what other ways and what kind of images are developed in this period that help Frenchmen and women not only to understand the Ottomans, but maybe to understand and critique themselves? Yeah, yeah. Um, this, uh, on the boiserie, uh, all the images are very peaceful. Uh, there, is, there is no scene of war. I mean, the, the only turmoil happens perhaps at the bottom of the, of the boiserie when uh, we see the Mediterranean and, and the galleys and, and uh, we see some, some, some monsters. Um, but um, the scenes from Constantinople are very, very uh, peaceful. And um, there are two scenes of encounters, uh, both uh, including Iversin. One is the picnic scene, which I've already talked about, uh, where Iversin, we, we recognize Iversin with, with his frise, with his, his uh, European, um, uh, yes, the ruffled colors, colored uh, <laughs> clothes. Um, and we see him as partaking into, into a, a picnic, um, enjoying, enjoying himself um, uh, with, with food and wine. And the other scene is the scene when Iversin is led to the Sultan. Um, and this is yet again a, a, an important scene uh, because it's not a, a scene where there is uh, conflict between mm -hmm. East and West, between the Sultan and the French envoy, but uh, it's simply uh, uh, an encounter and, uh, between, between two political um, representatives. Mm -hmm. Here. I think it it brings out a lot of um, 
So it reminds me a lot of recent scholarship on imperial intermediaries, especially kind of the work of Natalie Rothman, in which you know these intermediaries really talk about their own self-importance and try to protect themselves, create portraits of themselves. I'm thinking about you know these translators from Capodistria and things like that, uh, who you know lionize their own work of cultural translation and mediation, uh, even at a times you know maybe creating uh, greater rifts or in this case it seems like uh, creating greater similarities. Um, on that, let's, we're going to take a quick break, a musical break, uh, and we will return. Welcome back to the Autumn History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. I'm Michael Talbot. And we're speaking with Pascal Bart about Ottoman French relations in the 16th century and knowledge of the other. Uh, and we were talking about uh, this fascinating figure of Iversant. And we wanted to know, uh, we were speaking about kind of his, essentially his personal archive, a private archive, which is something quite rare. It's not something we actually have, for instance, on the, in the Ottoman archives at all. You know, we don't have any family archives. We don't have collections of letters. We don't have these um, uh, these personal aggregations of documents, uh, which you seem to have discovered. And so I'm just interested kind of to give us, you know, from the perspective of history of the archives, history of the written word and things like mm-hmm. that. How did this come together? How did it survive? Uh, what's in there? And what, how did, what kind of perspectives did it give you on this history that you didn't get a chance, you know, from maybe from working from the Bibliothèque Nationale mm-hmm. or these other places. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It survived thanks to the goodwill of the family of Iversin and his descendants. Uh, th- clearly, this, this was a family that um, uh, thought that it was worth uh, keeping uh, all the manuscripts uh, representing the, the, the diplomatic um, missions of, of Iversin and, and, and what came to be called the Travel Journal and, and the Boiserie. Um, several of these documents um, uh, got, got lost, uh, but we have, we have a lot. And um, I, I, th- I think, um, this might sound surprising, but I think that a lot of documents are being kept, particularly in France, and, and you would know more about, you know, uh, uh, Ottoman lands, um, but I, I don't think it's that surprising to to see that within a family mm-hmm. uh, we would we would want to keep uh, traces of uh, an illustrious uh, ancestor there, right. particularly when that one had made it a point to 
make himself appear uh, bigger than life uh, right. um, and to self-aggrandize uh, himself um, after his his um, trip to to Istanbul. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just thinking, uh, just to con- continue jump into this conversation, uh, you know, I've worked a little bit on trying to figure out kind of where are the private letters in, in Ottoman archives mm-hmm. uh, or in the kind of written space uh, of the early modern Ottoman Empire. And I think it's it's surprising that we just don't find it. Um, and I think this is actually, there's an analog as well to uh, the Chinese case where you find letters, but they're always in anthologies. And it's the same with the Ottoman case. Uh, and I, I find, you know, this is just kind of top of my head observations, but, you know, at least in the European culture of the early modern period, there, there was a very active a culture of letter exchange of, you know, cities or governments purposely buying the letters of famous individuals, of seeing letters uh, as, you know, representative of some sort of uh, history and inner history that needed to be preserved of these people. Um, And so it's just a fascinating source, you know, to be able to access them. So, um, you know, you're even more the luck you're even well, luckier yeah. to be able to use these uh, No, absolutely. And, and, and I must say that uh, Monsieur Charles-Henri Noblet d'Anglure, who, who owns those letters and the boiserie, has been extraordinarily generous mm-hmm. and, and will be to any historian, any, any person, any scholar interested in looking at, at these. Um, and, I think, and I think that, uh, you know, this is also a call for Ottoman historians, you know, to look beyond the Ottoman state archives or just manuscript libraries in Turkey. But you really have to go to places like uh, southern France, to all sorts of places to find these uh, collections. Absolutely, especially because, if, as you've mentioned, Pascal, there, there are so many Ottoman documents in European collections that will help us to reconstruct these links and perhaps get our hands precisely on the kind of material that, that Nir says is, is missing from our perspective. Right, absolutely. And and if I may add something about um, archives not all ending up in the Bibliothèque Nationale, uh, I, I think I think we have to remember that they do not all end up in the Bibliothèque Nationale. They're in private hands or they're um, in collections. I'm thinking of the, the Gordon collection at the University of Virginia, for mm. example, uh, which has uh, the collection of a, of a private collector. Um, um, and where, you know, I studied uh, Jacques de Bourbon's Chronicle of the Fall of Rhodes in, in uh, 1522. So uh, we need to keep our eyes open uh, in terms of, you know, primary sources for sure. And knock at doors and, and sometimes, you know, by talking to one another and uh, and with a lot of chance we, we come up with, with treasures, yes. So we've thought a bit about these these archives and these letters, but you also have at the heart of your story the... There's hommes de lettres, the, the, these intellectuals who spend time in Istanbul and then come back. And one of the, the premier figures in early modern literary culture that you mentioned in your study is Rabelais. Perhaps you could tell our listeners a bit about him and how you've used him and his thought to make sense of the kind of spaces that he's encountered both in Istanbul and back in, in France. Well, Rabelais never went to Istanbul. Ah, I see. And, My mistake. I and no, no, and no, and this is, but uh, one good thing that he did go to Istanbul because he was very aware of what was going on in the Ottoman Empire and uh, in Safavid Persia at, at the time. He traveled to Italy. And uh, he was aware of letters that um, were being sent about the political landscape of the Muslim world at the time. Um, he might have known a little bit of Arabic, but we, we suspect that his knowledge was quite limited. Um, 
but he was interested in many things, and particularly in, in, in the East, I argue. And he has two chapters in um, Pantagruel, chapter 14 and chapter 32, in which he describes, um, uh, of course, fictitious encounters with, with the Turks, uh, but in which he opens up, I think, a, a very interesting discussion about what it is to encounter um, someone of another religion, what it is to encounter someone who doesn't live uh, in France. Um, and he links um, in a sort of a utopian uh, uh, stage there, he links Constantinople with the Americas that were newly discovered and being um, explored by the French and uh, Europe. And he sees lots of commonalities. And he sees that in both places, Conversion is um, almost impossible, uh, and uh, there are acts of cruelty that happen uh, on, on all sides, which are related to uh, conversion and, and the, the fact that it's impossible or, or very difficult to, um, to convert. And if one does, this is sometimes at the risk of his, of, of, of his own life. Hmm. So, yeah. How does he account for this? Why is it that there are these commonalities between Ottomans and indigenous Americans? Yeah, yeah. So he, he this is through fiction that, that he accounts for this, really. Um, so he creates a fictitious world in which you've got a lot of um, passing through. So, so in my chapter, for example, I talk about pigeons as being um, animals, as being... Um, uh, carriers of news, but also carriers of um, good news, bad news, and what's going on on on, on in, in Ottoman and in, in Ottoman land, for example, and in Europe. Um, and he, through a usage of certain vocabulary, he would talk about a situation that takes place in his fiction in Ottoman land, but that could also be happening mm. very well in France. And so, for example, uh, when Panurge appears in Pantagruel for the first time, he explains that he just escaped from the Turks. And he goes on to uh, describe his adventures uh, in Mytilene, where he was almost captured and burned uh, at the stake. And Rabelais then pulls in what is going on in France at the time in terms of the beginning religious uh, wars. Uh, we're not yet in the wars themselves, but um, the Protestants uh, are, are active in France uh, at the time, in the 1530s, and people are being burned at the stake. So he's making parallels between situations, uh, which one of which is, is fictitious, you know, Pantagruel uh, coming back from Mytilene and almost have, having been captured and, and burned at the stake by, by um, the Turks, and what is going on um, in the French kingdom uh, with, with Protestants. Wow. So I mean, Rabelais is such an influential writer in France. Have you been able to trace kind of like the, the aftermath of his depictions of this this trans-regional space? I mean, does it influence subsequent depictions of Ottomans in French literature and uh, in other French writings? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, up, up until now, uh, scholars have actually not paid much attention mm. to... Uh, beca because it, it, it is a very small part of Rabelais' uh, literary works, really. But... but it's small, but it's very telling in the sense that it's 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 very detailed. It's very precise. It shows a knowledge of um, the the Islamic world world at the time. 
um, Timothy Hampton has has talked about those episodes. Um, but really, I think there's there's further um, further research that needs to be done here to see if you know Rabelais' fictitious encounters with the Ottomans actually had 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 an impact and a more concrete impact, uh, more than more than a literary impact on other other authors in, in France. Sure, is this on your radar? Is this a future project? <laughs> I'm I'm afraid not for the moment. <laughs> but why not? Why not come back to it at one point? <laughs> I think uh, it's an interesting um, discussion of Rabelais, and it reminds me of a sort of parallel text from the early 16th century, uh, 17th century Ottoman Empire, uh, a travelogue written by um, um, a Christian, Elias of Babylon, which Jean Paul Gobriel recently wrote about mm -hmm. again, you know, in which uh, Gobriel argues, and I definitely agree with him, that even though that uh, Elias of Babylon was writing about the Americas, he was actually. It was a larger commentary about uh, the confessionalization uh, and transformation of religious um, relations uh, in, you know, Baghdad, Mosul, uh, in the major urban um, Arab cities of the 17th century, and about this transformation. You know, he was uh, from, let's say, Orthodox Christianity to uh, Catholicism mm -hmm. and so forth. But the other thing that it reminded me of is also a genre of European travel literature, which I think predominated in the 17th and 18th century, but may have not been found in the 16th century yet, and that's captivity memoirs, and this notion of, you know, being caught by the Turk, uh, you know, being sold into slavery in the Mediterranean. Was this ever on the radar? Uh, for sure, in Rabelais, yeah, yeah. Panurge escapes this uh, yeah. fate. Um, but were there other, I mean, at that, were people writing captivity memoirs was he responding to a whole genre or other examples, or was it just a kind of a general thread in people's minds? I guess. I think I think it was a general thread in people's mind. I think people were very aware of the fact that they risked captivity, uh, particularly if they lived on on the coast or mm. or on islands. And a lot of the texts that I work on describe um, life on the islands, particularly the island the island of Rhodes, um, and how. Um, piracy was uh, was an issue uh, all throughout before uh, when it was in the hands of the Knights of St. John of uh, Jerusalem and after uh, the Ottomans conquered it in 1522. Um, so the the possibility of, of being captured and imprisoned and uh, sold for ransom uh, is is or, or not. Uh, right. Um, is is always lingering there and very present in, in in people's minds, whether people are writing fiction or whether people are writing pilgrimage narratives. Um, uh, in in some pilgrimage narratives, in in um, Tuno, for example, um, Tuno says that he encountered uh, someone who had been captured and and uh, forced to become Muslim and how this person uh, actually never meant to, to be Muslim <laughs> and how he succeeded in bringing him back to Christianity. So, of course, we can, we, can, uh, we can debate whether this is a story that actually happened or whether this was wishful thinking or whether this was a story that he had um, uh, read in, in a previous text. But I, I think this is very much in the mind of, of, of everyone at the time, yes. So, to sum things up, I think we've really got in a sense here of all the different types of narratives that were possible in the early 16th century. You know, so often we just think of this as an antagonistic relationship, but, you know, we've really explored 
uh, everything from you know minor diplomats and uh, interpreters to uh, and couriers to pilgrims to um, all sorts of different authors. Uh, it's really kind of given me at least a very wider sense of the literary world uh, in which these French authors are writing in. I agree, and I think it's so important to to take these literary texts as whole, as to look at them on their in their own terms, rather yes. than what many historians have done is to simply mine them for certain incidents or to, for certain tropes. Whereas what you've painted is a really convincing and, and rich picture using these these otherwise mm -hmm. fairly neglected texts. So thank you for mm -hmm. that. Yeah, and I, I think what's interesting also is that these genres are quite different. We have a chronicle, mm -hmm. we have uh, Pantagruel, we have diplomatic letters. And I think it's interesting to, to bring these texts um, together and, and to look at them uh, collectively as a, as a whole. Yes. It paints a, a bigger, uh, a fuller picture. Right, yeah, we can't limit ourselves to one yeah. genre. Yeah. Um, Any other last grand <laughs> statements? Yeah, I, th I, I think that we... Um, grand statement, I don't know. But, uh, okay. Um, I, uh, minor statement. A minor statement. Okay, now, now we'll start. Okay. <laughs> Uh, we we need to we need to remember that there was a time um, when the perception of the other was um, much more generous mm -hmm. than what it came to be uh, later. Definitely in in the second half of the 16th century, and then uh, after afterwards, um, the, all the authors are, I, I looked at um, have conflicting ideas about the Ottomans, and uh, some are more uh, ambivalent than others, some are very generously uh, inclined toward the Ottomans, others much less so, but um, there was a variety of opinions that were available, and um, the wars of religion in France is what I believe is, uh, is what I believe closed this um, this this palette of of options with regards to how to deal with hmm. with um, the Muslim other and in particular the the Ottomans and we see that in you know in right after the the, the outbreak of the um, the wars of religion and particularly the the uh, Saint Barthelme's um, massacre in 1572. Uh, there's a pamphlet that uh, appears right after that in 1576 called La France Turquie, and this pamphlet, you know, really closes the door to all of the possible options of perceiving the Ottomans at the time. Mm. Well, I think it's a great uh, view of how you know the domestic, the internal, is intimately connected with you know the international, the foreign, the other. Uh, and, you know, how we can't write these as separate histories in any way. Um, so with that, thank you so much, Pascal. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure Michael. Oh, yes, I absolutely enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And uh, for our listeners who'd like to know more, we uh, would very much encourage you to check out Pascal's book on the subject of uh, French encounters with the Ottomans in 15. 10 to 1560. And it's published with... Um, Routledge. Routledge. And it, it just came out in 2016. We encourage you to look it up. Uh, also, go to our website. There'll be a short bibliography that Pascal's provided of, place, of different sources you can look to for more information. Uh, hopefully, we'll have a few images there as well. Um, and we encourage our listeners to also go to our Facebook page. That's where you can get connected to the larger 
Ottoman History Podcast community, find out about uh, different events and uh, both online, offline, and so forth that we are publicizing. Um, and tune in soon enough for another podcast. Thank you. Thank you.